This week on Behind the Bars, we explore the life and crimes of the co-ed killer, Ed Kemper. Kemper is an American serial killer, serial rapist, and necrophile who murdered 10 people in the 1960s and 1970s. Kemper is known for being one of the most intelligent serial killers in history, having an IQ of 145. We hope you enjoy. everybody welcome back to behind the bars podcast i am mckenna and this is db hello and today we're covering a crowd favorite today we are talking about none other than the co-ed killer ed kemper so kemper is actually my favorite serial killer that's why i chose him for this week after our our boring son of sam last week we needed somebody who was exciting you can only have so much boring so, Ed Kemper was born December 18th, 1948, which actually puts him at 72 years old currently. He's known as the co-ed killer because most of who he killed were co-eds. He had a few other nicknames, none of which I actually have ever heard anyone reference him by. So they're bizarre. Yeah. I mean, I, I know a ton of people that have talked to him, know him, and they none of them ever heard of any of these besides yeah. co-ed killer. They're like, yeah, those, those are dumb. Or Big Ed, but I think Big Ed was yeah, Big more Ed, like that an one. affectionate thing. But like Ogre of Aptos. Yeah. Who? What? Yeah, I, I, I got nothing. <laughs> so Ed is six foot nine. And before he had his heart attack, you know, back when he was committing these crimes, he was 300 plus pounds. So he was a big motherfucker. Big guy. So his convictions were first degree murder. He had eight of them. And he, his crimes kind of go in two little sprees. He had a few in the late, I believe it was, yes, or yeah, beginning of the 60s. And then he had some beginning of the 70s. He's currently serving eight life sentences at the California Medical Facility. He's never going to get out. I mean, they, he wants to go out, but he's not going to get out. And he's eligible for parole in 24. Yeah. Yeah, he just got denied, what, last year or year before? Uh, 2017, I think, was his last parole. Okay, so it was a few years ago. I was wrong. Yeah. But, I mean, again, I, I think we talked about this with Son of Sam, where it's, like, he's too infamous. Like, imagine the headlines of, like, Ed Kemper released from prison. Like, yeah. no, no, no. Like, he's way too manipulative to even consider yeah. So, he had 10 victims. Span of crimes were 1964 to 1973, all of which were in California. Uh, apprehended the first time in 1964, second time in 1973, so he had almost 10 years in between the two. And like I said, he's being held to California Medical Facility, which is actually the same place they were holding Charles Manson and who else is over there? Um, Herbert Mullen. Yep. So those kind of the, the big name serial killers end up here. I don't know why. I mean, they're kept on the same wing and everything. So, which I I just love. There's nothing nothing could potentially go wrong there. No, I mean they're all. It's kind of the most secure wing, so they're not going anywhere. That's fair. So I'm gonna let you start this one out and tell okay. us about his early life. Yeah. So, um, Ed Kemper's full name is Edmund Emil Kemper the third. Born in Burbank on December 18th, 1948. He was the middle child and the only son born to Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper II, obviously. Um, Ed Kemper's father was a World War II veteran who, after the war, tested nuclear weapons. Um, and his mom was awful, which 
it kind of fits the theme with a lot of serial killers of, of parents that are just horrible. Yes. His mom really takes the cake. Um, she calls his father's job a menial electrical job um, and said that. And then his father goes on to later say, and I quote, suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her, which is such a phenomenal quote. Yeah, you have to be one huge fucking bitch to have somebody say that about you right now when kemper was born he weighed 13 pounds so he was the size of a pretty sizable uh thanksgiving turkey yeah uh he was a head taller than his peers by age four obviously the man grew to be six foot nine so he was never going to be a tiny human yeah yeah and put from that the in, beginning oh go ahead i'll say to put that in perspective that's taller than i am and you've yeah. seen me. I'm a big and guy. DB's tall. DB's a big guy. Um, but like Kemper, I don't want to say dwarfs you, but he definitely makes you look like a smaller human. Yeah. Than you are. I mean, he only has an inch on me, but he probably has over a hundred pounds on me. So he's a little bit bigger. Yeah. And so his parents were really engaged in his <clears throat> upbringing and well-being, I think more so than a lot of parents were. But Ed was just a really kind of difficult kid. He was really afraid of being physically hurt by other people. Um, he tortured and killed animals. He entertained fantasies, which combined sex and violence from an early age. His mother found him dour and unmanageable. And so at, at this point, he kind of gets sent from place to place. So he was living with his mother and his stepfather. They can't deal with him. Send him to live with his father and his stepmother or girlfriend. It was, yes. Yeah. Father and stepmother. And then they can't deal with him. They, they find the same issues of he's just weird and kind of threatening and, and just so hard to deal with. And so they send him to go live with his grandparents on a 17 acre farm in North Fork, California, which is exactly as small as you think it is. Yes. Yeah. It's a tiny little town. That's literally like the only thing that's ever happened in this town is the murders. That's, that's about it. Spoilers. Yeah. So early on, he exhibited a lot of antisocial behaviors. The biggest one, like she said, cruelty to animals. When he was only 10 years old, he actually buried the family cat alive. Once it died, he dug it up, decapitated it, and mounted its head on a spike. So, you know, a little fucked up at 10 years old. Yeah. So he later stated that he derived pleasure from successfully lying to his family about killing the cat. You know, okay, yeah, he's 10, little concerning to say the least. Yeah. And just three years later, when he was 13, he killed another family cat when he thought it was favoring his younger sister. Imagine being crazy enough to kill the family cat because it prefers your sister. Except he's not crazy. Yeah. And not only did he kill the second family cat, but he kept pieces of it in his closet until his mother finally found them. I really love that his MO remains consistent from the time that he's 10 all the way up until the end. That is his thing. He is going to kill it, He's going to decapitate it. He's going to do something kind of fucking weird with the body. And then he's going to move on. Hey, at least he didn't do that to the cats. He didn't do that to the cats. But he, you know, still like kill it, decapitate it. And, and, and move on. And so that's so funny that started with cats and then went to humans with the very same MO. Yeah. So like she said, uh, his MO stayed that even when he was young, he would the performing quote-unquote rites with his sister's dolls in which he would remove their heads and hands. And he's actually quoted saying, uh, sorry, I lost it here. So his sister actually asked him, you know, why didn't he try to kiss his female teacher? Because she knew he had, you know, feelings for her. And he replied, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first, which is foreshadowing to what would happen later. Right. And he actually used to stalk the second grade teacher. He would steal his father's bayonet and climb through her windows and either watch her in the room or watch her through the windows, which is incredibly creepy. I mean, imagine looking out and there's this, you know, what are you in second grade? 11, 12, somewhere in there. Yeah. Just staring through your windows at you with a bayonet. A little creepy. And by 15, he was 6'4". So at 11 or 12, he was already 5'10". Yeah, he was probably... 5, 10. Yeah. 
five, nine, five, 10. So like not, not a normal 11 year old, just being like creepy and quirky. This was like a man sized child stalking her through her windows with a bayonet which almost makes it worse i think i would rather have a normal sized child looking through my windows when they're that big it it just it creeps me out there's something wrong with it i mean i was that kid i was always a big kid but yeah but you weren't stalking people with a bayonet no i i can't you waited to do that until you were older hey that was only once it was just with you don't worry about it (laughs) all right so, bunch of creepy stuff. Uh, he goes to live with his grandparents, and he kind of finds an outlet in shooting rabbits and gophers and birds. Um, he's being told not to, but he goes and does that anyway, which is better than the alternative, even though that doesn't last long. Um, at the end of a summer... Well, no, he goes to spend summer with his mom uh, and two weeks later ter- winds up back at the farm. Yeah. They couldn't deal with him. Yeah, and couldn't his grandma- deal with him. Oh. So kind of uh, we're to go back a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. So his parents actually separated in 1957. And at this point, Kemper was super close to his mother or his father. So he was absolutely devastated at this point because as we've heard, you know, the quote from his father, his mother is just evil. They describe his mother here as a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused him. So it wasn't just physical abuse, it was mental abuse as well. She was just all around terrible. She actually made him sleep in a locked basement because she was scared that he would harm his sisters, which I guess with finding the cats, totally understandable, but pretty valid. Yeah. And she also refused to show him any affection. Because she was scared it would turn him gay. I I got nothing on that one. That's dumb to say yeah. the least. But and later on it was they're assuming that she suffered from borderline personality disorder, which would totally fit with her because she was kind of nuts. Right. So like she said, uh he ran away from living with his mother and ran away to his father's in Van Nuys, California. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there very long. He learned his father remarried and had a stepson. You know, like she said, hung around. They couldn't handle him. So they sent him to live with his grandparents who lived on a ranch in North California. He absolutely hated this. He described his father as senile and his mother was uh, his grandmother was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather. So he didn't want to be here. He didn't like them, but he was stuck there. And this is where we get into the first murders he committed. It was actually at the age of 15. Yeah. So he returns home after the two weeks, failed going home to his mother's over the summer. And upon his return, grandmother comments that he's regressed. He's more sullen, more ominous, and he's kind of always at the farm now. And Edmund found this, thought his grandmother was a nag, thought his grandfather was a bore, violent fantasies returned. And then, like I said, this is when he started really using shooting animals as an outlet. He also began imagining shooting his grandmother and would routinely go outside, line her up in the uh, crosshairs on his weapons and pretend to shoot her um, just to think of what it would feel like. Um, on more than one occasion, his grandmother took his 45 caliber pistol with her on outings, uh, just because it seemed like she was worried that he might use it for something nefarious. Turns out she was right. Yeah, she wasn't far off. Yeah. I mean, everybody had an idea that Ed was pretty fucked up from the beginning. Um, everyone was scared of him. Everyone knew that something was going to happen and, and sure enough. So on August 27th of 1964, at the age of 15, um, Ed's sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother when they have an argument. Um, And he storms off, retrieves the rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. Um, He walks out and then turns around uh, at the screen door. Her back was to him. He raised his rifle takes aim at her head, fires once, and then fires twice more, hitting her in the back. He goes back into the house, wraps her head in a towel, drags her body into the bedroom, 
And then a few minutes later, his grandfather comes home. Yes. So what was actually funny when she saw him going out, his grandmother's last words were actually, oh, you better not be shooting the birds again. And this is when he started shooting her. Nope, grandma won't yeah, go shoot nope, the birds. I'm not shooting birds. Shoot I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and there were some accounts that said she also suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with a kitchen knife. I've seen yes, I've seen no, so right. we're not entirely I mean, sure. And if he did, it does kind of fit his MO because he's known to inflict post-mortem wounds. So absolutely. that wouldn't be too far off. So when Kemper's grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper the first, returned from grocery shopping, Kemper went outside and fatally shot him in the driveway. He claimed he did this because he didn't want his grandfather to see what he did. He thought his grandfather would be angry with him. Well, no shit. You just shot grandma. Right. I saw another quote that said um, he was worried that the sight of his dead wife would give him a heart attack. Yeah. So he was, oh, good guy, Ed Kemper, (laughs) shooting your grandfather to to, to save him from the sorrow of seeing his dead wife. Yeah. So once he shot his grandfather, he didn't know what to do. So who does he call? His mother. And she told him to contact local police, which he did. And then he sat there and waited to be taken into custody. Once they arrested him, he admitted that he just wanted to see how it felt to kill grandma. Well, I can't say I've ever wondered, you know, hey, what does it feel like to kill grandma? Right. Never, ever. And so, of course, because of this, his crimes are deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit. Court psychiatrists diagnose him as a paranoid schizophrenic and send him to a Toscadero State Hospital, which is a maximum security facility that houses mentally ill convicts. Um, which is probably one of the worst places they could send him. Right. Because this is where he learns how to do everything he does for the rest of his life. I mean, he, he becomes an even better manipulator from going to this place well absolutely and part of it is because he's so intelligent they administer two iq tests while he's in a tascadero one he scores a 136 which is over two standard deviations above average and then later on they give him another one and he gets an even higher test result of 145 that's insane that's an insanely high iq so he is so unbelievably smart so of course like you said taking him to a place where he can learn from other people and not to mention model manipulator here he's a model prisoner and thus makes friends with all the psychiatrists he gets to be the one to help administer psychiatric testing to some of the other inmates so he gets to learn from them he also gets to learn from the tests and he gets to learn what they're looking for in these people which only makes him a better serial killer when he gets out later on yes one of his psychiatrists actually said he was a very good worker and not typical of a sociopath, and that he really took pride in his work. Well, of course he did. He wanted to learn how to manipulate you better. So that's what he did. While in Atascadero, uh, he actually helped develop new tests and new scales on the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is how they judge different mentally ill people is what mm-hmm. it essentially is. So, yeah, the fact that they helped let him help do this was ridiculous, and I can guarantee you it would never fly now. No. And after second arrest, he actually said that being able to understand how these tests function allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist and admitted that he learned a lot from the sex offenders who he administered the test to. So, one example he gives is they told him, to avoid leaving witnesses. So he decided that it was best to kill a woman after raping her. So there is no witness. So all of this kind of lines up perfectly for what he does later. So we can kind of blame his psychiatrist for this one. We can blame his psychiatrist for a lot of stuff. Yeah. All the way up to, and including his release. Yes. From a Tascadero. On December 18th, 1969, his 21st birthday, he's released on parole. And I guess it is against recommendations of the psychiatrists, but regardless, he's released into the care of his mother. Yes. And that's a woman the... who they said he should have literally no contact with because she sucks as a human. Yep. They released him back into her custody. Yeah. I, that was her biggest mistake. If they wouldn't have done that, I don't know if he would have went on and did what he did. 
I, I honestly, I don't think so. No. I also wonder if he had killed his mother first, if he would have done anything else. Probably because, not. Because spoiler think- alert, he kills his mom and then he stops because he says there's no point anymore. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird thought. So uh, once he got out, he obviously was staying with his mother. He attended community college because his parole, that was part of his parole requirements. He had to do that. And he actually hoped to become a police officer, which he kind of went the complete opposite way. He was actually rejected because of his size. He was too big. There was actually a height limit. And this is what led to his nickname of Big Ed. He maintained relationships with different police officers on the Santa Cruz Police Department. Despite his rejection to join the force, they just kind of, he was what they call a friendly nuisance. He was always hanging out at the bar called the Jury Room, which is one of the popular hangouts for cops, detectives, whatnot around there. So he knew them all pretty well. He was, like he said, the friendly nuisance. So while he couldn't be a cop, he hung around, you know. It was kind of was the, the best friends he could with do. all the cops and got the yeah. ins from all the cops. So I even watched one of the documentaries with him where he said that, like, during the co-ed killer investigations, he was in the jury room chatting with his buddies. What do yep. you think about this guy? What do you know about this guy? And just making casual conversations, buying his friend a beer and being like, so tell me what's going on and like getting the scoop on his own investigation. Yeah. Which was like we said. He's an incredibly intelligent guy, and he used it to his advantage. Yep. So his uh, dreams of being a police officer dashed. He worked a series of menial jobs before gaining employment with the State of California Division of Highways, which is now the California Department of Transportation. Um, And after a while, he makes enough money. He moves out to Alameda, (laughs) California. And uh, even then he still complained about not being able to get away from his mother because she regularly phoned him and paid him surprise visits. Alameda's not that far away from Aptos, um, where his, his mother was. So, um, he also often had financial difficulties, which resulted in him frequently returning to his mother's apartment, which actually led to more fights. Big shocker. Right. Uh, he was actually quoted when he was talking, being interviewed about his mother, And he's quoted saying, my mother and I started in on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother. And I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things, which is kind of funny because he ends up killing her. Right. She insisted on and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether or not I should have my teeth cleaned. So love that. It's like, yeah, they were it just, just really shows the immaturity of both of them. Yes. But I love how, you know, he says, you know, I couldn't stand the thought of hurting my mother and then murders her later. It's like right. you kind of went the opposite way on this one. You say these things, but I don't think they mean what you think they mean. No. Um, so while at Santa Cruz Beach, Kemper actually met a student from Turlock High School and they got engaged in March of 73. Uh Obviously, the engagement was broken off after his second arrest. Uh, her name has actually never been released. Yeah, I... or at least I couldn't find it. Um, and it, it even says that the his fiance's parents requested her name not be revealed to the public, and they've done a very good job of that. I searched high and low for a hot minute to see if I could find her name. Same here. I try, I've been trying for a long time because I want I would love to interview her, but that's. Yeah. But I think, honestly, at this point, she wants to be so far away from the fact that she was engaged to Ed Kemper. And I yeah, I did find it a little awkward that he was 26 at this point and she She was was like, yeah, little creepy, which I mean, it does kind of fit the story (laughs) later on because I mean, he goes after what a 15 year old, I believe, was the youngest. So, yeah, it's not shocking. No. And so the same year that he began working for the highway division, um, he actually got hit by a car while riding a motorcycle. Um, his arm was badly injured and he received a $15,000 settlement, which is about $90,000 today um, in a civil suit that he filed against the car's driver. Um, and at this point is when he starts kind of 
collecting things into his car. Uh, he starts noticing a large number of women that are hitchhiking and he begins storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, handcuffs, you know, no- totally normal like picnic fodder. Definitely things that you need to have a lovely picnic with a cute girl that you pick up. I'm just saying, I think I have every one of those things in my truck right now. <laughs> I, okay, actually, I don't have handcuffs, but I have the other three things. Yeah. I mean, I have handcuffs because also, of work, so I mean. Right, yeah. I and, also have a tent chair or a camping chair and a, a pretty substantial first aid kit, so, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, when you know what I do for work and that I hunt and everything else, having these things are not that uh, that far-fetched. Okay. Y'all heard it here first. Yes, me and all my spare time. (laughs) Right. At this point, Kemper starts actually picking young women up and letting them go. Um, And according to him, he picked up around 150 hitchhikers. Um, And this actually was where he learned the nuances how to get people to get into the car, you know, kind of acting like a busy businessman and like checking your watch and being like, Oh, do I have time to pick them up? Oh, I guess I do. Just looking very nonchalant about the whole thing, which causes these girls to put their guard down of, Oh, this guy's not stalking me. He's pulling over because he happens to have time to give me a ride and we're going the same direction. And that is how he got all of his victims. So from here, uh, over the next 11 months, he actually kills eight different people. Like she said, he would pick them up. There were always female students who were hitchhiking, take them to isolated areas, which he actually knew a ton of them from working on the highway department. He would murder them. He'd either stab them, shoot them, smother them, or strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home where he'd decapitate them, perform uromatio, which is having sex with severed heads, He'd have sexual intercourse with the corpses and then dismember them and get rid of them. So Iromatio actually isn't specifically having uh, sexual intercourse with severed heads. It's actually forceful fellatio. So oh. you can actually do this with a live human um, in, in really horrible terms. And, and it's going to make sense for Ed Kemper. It's commonly referred to as skull fucking. So do it that way you will. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Wonderful. Oh, God, I hope my parents don't ever listen to this podcast. Oh, I'm sending it to them. Don't. Can't. Want to bet? (laughs) Whatever. All right. Let's start with number one. Number one and two, actually. Yes. On May 7th, 1972, Kemper's driving in Berkeley, and he picks up two 18-year-old hitchhiking students from Fresno State, Marianne Pesky and Anita Mary Lucessa, um, and he is offering to take them to Stanford University. After driving for an hour, he reaches a secluded wooded area near Alameda, which, as D.B. stated, he was familiar with because of his work at the highway department. Um, it was there that he handcuffed Pesky and locked Lucessa in the trunk then stabbed and strangled Pesky to death, subsequently killing Lucessa in a similar manner. Now, Kemper admits this was such a shit show. Like, he fucked up left and right, thought he locked the keys in his car, wound up finding them in his back pocket, dropped a gun, forgot he even had a gun. It was it just absolute, like, such, like, it was really, it's like first-time jitters. It was so cute. <laughs> that, that's what's cute nowadays. <laughs> yeah but he was very polite because when he went to handcuff one of them he apparently brushed the back of his hand against one of their breasts and embarrassed him and he's quoted saying that he said whoops i'm sorry or something like that when he did this so the fact that he would apologize you know oh i accidentally touched your breast and then murder you minutes later it's like Okay, well, I, I mean, I guess he was polite, but he still, you know, murdered and raped Polite, people. Politely murders, politely murders people. How sweet. Yeah, how oh, he's just a stand-up gentleman. So, I found this kind of bizarre. So he put both these bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. On the way back to his apartment, he was actually pulled over for a broken taillight, but. I mean, there was no reason to expect that there were corpses in the car. So, you know, they told him, hey, get your taillight fixed, send him on his way. I want to know what that officer thought years later, John. Huh, maybe I should have checked that. 
Right. Right. But I mean, he really like, he couldn't be too hard on himself. He really had no reason to like, no. you're doing a routine traffic stop. Like yeah. when are you going to be like, open your trunk? Let me see what you have inside. Like. Yeah. Not a chance. No. So go ahead. No, you, you finish this one. All right. So Kemper's roommate wasn't home at this time. So he actually took the bodies into his apartment and he photographed them and had sexual intercourse with the naked corpses before dismembering them. After this, he put the body parts in different plastic bags and he abandoned them over the Loma Prieta mountain. So pretty much just took them to the nearest mountain reserve and dropped them here and there. They'll find them later. So before disposing of both these severed heads, he once again, as McKenna wonderfully put it, skull fucks both of them. And in August of that year, they actually found the, I can't remember how you said her name. Pesky? Pesky? Is it it Pesky? I'm not entirely sure. I've heard both. Okay. I was going with Pesky. Yes. So they actually found her skull, which was a plus and an extensive search actually failed to turn up the rest of the bodies or any trace of the other girl he killed so no one's ever found her as far as i know he i which, didn't find anything saying no, that they were for his being i mean he was pretty careless just throwing it here and there the fact that no one ever found the other one was pretty amazing so his next victim is aiko ku on the evening of September 14, 1972, he picked up a 15-year-old hitchhiker named Aikoku. She actually missed her bus going to a dance class. And he said, hey, you know, hey, I'll drive you there. He again drove out to a remote area. They knew where he pulled a gun on her. And when he did this, he actually locked him out of the car. Kind of. So when he locked himself out, he had left the gun in the car somehow he convinced Koo to let him back inside, even though the gun was in there. If somebody pulled a gun on me, I would not be letting them back in the car. If you're in the car and you have the keys, why would you let somebody back in? Right. So another, you know, listening to, because he did multiple interviews, which was phenomenal. It's so cool. Cool and horrifying to listen to him tell these things in his own words. It sounds like he didn't actually pull the gun on her in a like, pull and aim it was a like tried to get the gun out of his pocket dropped it on the floorboard at her feet don't know if she really noticed or not or if she didn't think that he was like going to kill her that he just had a sidearm like so many humans do then locked himself out of the car and then being the lovely manipulative gentleman he was he's like oh i wasn't gonna do anything with it just let me back in she's like okay and lets him back in the car much to her dismay because he then proceeds to choke her unconscious rape her and then kill her he packs her body into the trunk of his car goes to a nearby bar has a few drinks and then goes back to his apartment and this is the part that gets me is he later confessed after exiting the bar he opened the trunk and i quote admired his catch like a fisherman just like man look at that look at that such a good catch like dude yeah and so, so some, oh, go ahead. Once he admires his catch like a fisherman, he takes the body back to his apartment, dismembers it, has intercourse with it, just like the other two, and disposes it the same way as the other two. You know, drops it off at different mountain ranges. It is what it is. Ku's mother called police to report the disappearance of her daughter, and they actually put up hundreds of flyers asking for information, but they received no responses. So she never knew what happened to her Which, and as far as i know the body was never found either correct yeah as far as i i couldn't find anything saying that it was ever found yeah so fourth victim on january 7th 1973 at this point kemper has moved back in his mother um he's driving around the cabrillo college campus and he picks up 18 year old student cynthia ann who goes by cindy shawl Drives, to, drives her to a wooded area and fatally shoots her with a 22 caliber, pis, caliber pistol. Sorry, y'all. I have two tongues. Sometimes one gets tired and we got to readdress. He then places her body in the trunk of his car and drives to his mother's house, where he then keeps the body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. 
When his mother leaves for work the next morning, he has sexual intercourse with it, removes the bullet from the corpse, and then dismembers and decapitates her in his mother's bathtub. Which is awesome. I mean, I guess it's better than the soup pot that Bordella used. (sighs) Nothing's ever going to beat the soup pot. (laughs) The soup pot was like just such a solid visual. It was. I just imagine his mother's bathroom, you know, the freely shower curtains and the carpet, you know, toilet seat cover. And he's just sitting here chopping up this person with a power saw. Don't mind me, mom. Also, the foresight to remove the bullet. Yes. To take that out so it can't be traced back to a weapon it just really shows the the level of insight that he got from his policeman friends of, oh, we found this bullet. We traced it back to this gun, which is registered to this guy. And we got him. He was like, nope, we're not dealing with that. I'm going to pop that sucker out of there and get rid of it. So he actually kept this head for several days and kept fucking the head because, you know, that's what he does. So he actually proceeds to bury it in his mother's garden facing upwards towards her bedroom. He stated the reason he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. That's cute. Yeah. Thinking of mommy. How sweet. It's touching. Later on, he discards the rest of the remains by throwing them off a cliff. And over the next few weeks, all of her except her head and right hand were discovered and they were kind of pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle. Once again, how sweet. And a pathologist determined that Shaw had been cut into pieces with a power saw. So it's funny because all of Cindy is now that you mention it really reminiscent of Birdella. Yes. Of, of the, the dismemberment, the draining of the body, the cutting the head off and burying it in the backyard. Just, just, it's, I, who came first? Um, because I can't remember when Bordello was. Let's see. Are they, are they in like the same time period? I feel like we're both early 70s here. Bordello was caught in 88. Oh, <gasps> where's Bordella inspired by Kemper? Killed six months between 84 and 87. Bordello was totally copycat killing. Why has nobody ever pointed this out? Oh, well, because he preyed on men, not young college co-eds. Whatever. Yeah. I stand by my statement. (laughs) All right. On February 1973, after a heated argument with his mother, Kemper left his house in search of possible victims. A lot of, you know, he moves back in with his mother, goes and kills Cindy. Has an argument with his mother, goes out and kills two more. Everything comes back to mom. There was a heightened suspicion, obviously, of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area. Did this stop people from hitchhiking? No. Did it stop people from sitting in their cars when the son of Sam was killing people sitting in their cars? No. No. People are not going to learn. Anyway, uh, he found two hitchhikers because they didn't heed the warnings that campus broadcasted. Uh, 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and 20-year-old Alice Helen, went by Allison Liu, he picked them up on the UCSC campus. However, he did have a UCSC sticker in his car because of his mother, which is one of the things that the college said to watch for, of don't get in a car that doesn't have a sticker on it, but I'm sorry, you can buy a sticker anyway. <clears throat> yeah, how about we, you know, just don't hitchhike and Stop hitchhiking. don't have that problem. Right. So... Kemper goes really in depth into these two, which is really interesting. So Lou was a seasoned hitchhiker. She had backpacked all over Europe. She hitchhiked all the time. She knew what to look for. She did not like the look of Kemper. She did not want to get in that, in that car. Thorpe, on the other hand, very young, naive, had just gotten into hitchhiking all about it. Yes, let's go. Hi, you're going our direction. Let's get in, hop in. And so Thorpe hops in and Lou gets in after him. The other thing that Lou thought was disconcerting was that Kemper drove a a coupe. Um, So it's just a two door. So for two people to get into the car with him, somebody has to get into the back and can only get out if the person in the front lets them out. It puts them in a really sketchy situation. So Thorpe or yeah, Lou, not into it. Thorpe, all about it. So they get in the car. 
He then kills them both with a 22 caliber pistol and wraps their bodies in blankets. Yeah, I, yeah. Maybe it's just me. I trust my gut when it comes to those things. It's like, no, mm-mm, don't, right. I don't, I don't think so. And I think she was trying to. I think she was like, <clears throat> I, don't like it. I don't like it. But the other girl was so enthusiastic that she's like, all right, well, I'm not going to let her get in by herself. You know, oh, at I would have been like, bye, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you're Maybe that's why I'm yeah, girl it's thing. It's a girl Even thing. if I was a girl, I'd be like, oh, fuck you, you're done. We can't go to the bathroom by ourselves. We're sure as shit not going to hitchhike by ourselves. Well, don't be fucking dumb. I mean, I mean, don't don't hitchhike. That, <laughs> especially when you know there's somebody picking, Especially when you know there's somebody killing hitchhikers. Like, why why would you still hitchhike? So, Gotta get somewhere. Shortly after this, he was actually questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims. He was quoted saying, "The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person." I remember being told as a kid, you cut the head off and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Yeah, that's a little chilling, just a wee bit. Even though he preferred, it seems like he preferred the head. It does. So I, sure. Yeah. So I don't really understand that there's a lot left in the girl's body, but, but sir, you didn't really care about the body. You wanted the head. Yeah. And so this is, I really, I don't, I couldn't find pictures of his car, but he beheaded both of these girls in his car. You cannot tell me that that was not a horrifically messy endeavor. Exactly. That was my thought too. When I read that, I'm like, okay, how did someone not see in the car, smell it, something? Right. Because he goes a full a full like two months two before months. he kills the next one. Yeah, before his final killing. So like, I'm sorry, sir. You just driving around with a bloody cute little car. And with how nosy his mother was, how didn't she find it? Right. So he he then he carries the headless corpses into his mother's house, obviously to have sexual intercourse with them. Then dismembers the body, removes the bullets, and discards the remain the next morning. Um, some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and then more were found near Highway One in March, which is a month later. Um, I guess his mom doesn't have any nosy neighbors because, like, I feel like if I were to carry a headless corpse into my house, that like somebody might see something. I actually I pulled up like street view of where his mother's house was it would be impossible not to see it right I mean, all these houses are like super close together and like this weird roundabout it's like how would you not see that yeah so unless he was doing it like in the middle of the i mean i guess he must have been it must have been in the middle of the night because yeah, he decapitated he just... them in the car and then carried their headless corpses into that into the house like he did not care about being seen yeah she he got lucky so now we're going on to his actual final two murders on april 20th 1973 after coming home from a party 52 year old clarnell who's actually his mother awakened her son with his arrival while sitting in bed reading her book getting ready for, you know she's just reading her book before she goes to sleep she noticed kemper enter her room and said to him i suppose you're gonna want to sit up all night and talk now kemper replied with nope good night and he proceeds to leave unless her fall asleep. He returns with a claw hammer and a pen knife and slits her throat and bludgeons her until she's dead. You think this is bad? Oh, no. Just wait. Yes. So if you're squeamish, eh, I'd stop now. So he decapitates her, engages in Irmatio, which, once again, skull-fucking his own mother, and skull-fucked her severed head, and then used it as a dartboard. Kemper stated that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour and then threw darts at it and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut out her tongue and larynx and tried to put them through the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break down the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back into the sink. He's quoted saying that seemed appropriate as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. How sweet. Delightful. Yes. So he hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went to drink at a nearby bar. So consistent. He kills, he drinks, he goes back and dismembers. 
Upon his return, however, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor, who went by Sally Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When she arrived, Kemper strangles her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on vacation. He subsequently put Hallett's corpse in a closet, obscured any outward signs of a disturbance, and left notes to the police. It read, Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, quote, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents, just a lack of time. I got things to do. And then he flees. And he drives nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and he full-on believed he was the target of a, of a manhunt. He knew they were coming for him. He was ready. And then he didn't hear anything. And he got really disappointed because yes. he wanted that recognition of that thing that he had done. And so he called and confessed. What do the cops do? They, they said, don't believe him. Call back later? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I'm sure somebody probably got fired over that one. I and, hope so. Yeah. So what does Kemper do? Uh, he goes off, does his thing, doesn't really do anything. Calls back several hours later and asks to speak to an officer that he personally knew from hanging out at the jury room. And he confessed to that officer that he killed his mother in Hallett waited for the police to arrive, take him into custody, and that's where he confessed the murders of the six other students. He's asked in an interview why he turned himself in. He said the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Towards the end there, I started to feel the folly of the whole damn thing. At that point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. So he didn't really call it all off. You know, he finally killed the one person he'd been wanting to kill for years. And right. He decided he was that done. was it. He was done. Yeah. And, and I think he had he had served his purpose. Yeah. Where his his purpose the whole time, I think, was to kill his mother without killing his mother. And yes. then finally he had he he gave in and killed his mother. Which I don't want to say I condone murder. But she kind of deserved it. She was a horrible fucking person. Yeah, she sucked. And it wasn't just, you know, him that hated her, him, his father. Everyone said, yeah, no, you're a terrible fucking person. Yeah, she's a horrible person. She didn't deserve to die the way that she did. Um, That that was a a really horrible death, even even for a, a sadistic bitch like her. But, like, she sucked. Yeah. So... so. Kemper's indicted on eight counts of first-degree <clears throat> murder on May 7th, 1973. He was assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County, attorney Jim Jackson. And due to his explicit and detailed confession, their only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, it didn't work. Uh, he did try, try twice to commit suicide while in custody, but his trial went ahead on October 23rd, 1973. So he actually initially said that he actually had some cannibalism that he'd done. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately. He kind of recanted it later. But once his trial started, three court-appointed uh, court psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane, which I don't know how. I mean, it, a sane person doesn't right. do this. No. Especially with this past. Granted, though, all his stuff was sealed years ago, so they had none of it. However, no, one they of these did find it. Yeah. Like, uh, Dr. Joel Fort investigated the juvenile records and and found the diagnosis that he was labeled as yes. psychotic after killing his grandparents. Yeah. But without looking for it, I mean, you weren't going to find it. Oh, so no. Fort actually interviewed Kemper, including under the use of truth serum, which is not entirely accurate. I mean, truth serum is kind of one of those. It sounds good, but does it really work? Eh. Right. So he relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the the legs of his victims, cooked and consumed these three strips in a casserole. How cute. You know, he's making a casserole at home. Nonetheless, he determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each of these cases and stated that Kemper enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Kemper later recanted, saying that, no, I never ate anybody. So 
whether he did or not is out for debate still. Again, they're administering psychiatric tests that like he perfected as a juvenile. Yes. Like he's going to know how to pass these. He's going to know what to say. It's yeah. But California used the Monoton. Monoton. It's for those of you that don't know this word, it's M apostrophe N A G H T E N. It's German. Monoton. Uh, and it held, holds that for a defendant to, quote, establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defective reason from disease of mind and not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know that what was that what he was doing was wrong. Wait, you mean it so, wasn't okay that he did this? <sighs> well, so based off of this, though, I would have a hard time saying that Kemper was insane. Like, he knew what he was doing was wrong. He yeah. knew what he was doing was fucked up. He was completely aware of the horrible crimes that he was committing. So I, I have a hard time saying, well, he was insane because insanity here says he wouldn't have any idea of the gravity of what he was doing. I think he was, he was far too intelligent to be insane. Right. He knew what he was doing. I mean, there's no way he didn't. Right. And plus, he never knew if he was telling the truth or not because he could manipulate anybody. I mean, he did it to psychiatrists, doctors, law enforcement, everybody. Yeah. So, so on, um, go, ahead. go ahead. Nope, you do it. All right. So on November 8th, 1973, the six man, six woman jury deliberated for five hours for declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He actually requested the death penalty and requested death by torture. However, with a moratorium being placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count, which was actually eight counts. And he had to serve these terms concurrently. And he's sentenced to the California Medical Facility, which is actually where he's still at today. Like we mentioned. I looked it up and death by torture doesn't exist, by the way. Oh, yeah, no. I looked it up. I was like, wait, is this a thing? Is death by torture, like, is or was this a thing? It's not, death by torture is not, uh, like, a thing that can be, that can be done. No, (laughs) but he wanted it. So, while being locked up, like we mentioned earlier, he was incarcerated on the same prison blocks as other notorious criminals, such as Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. He particularly disliked Mullen. He claimed that Mullen was just a cold-blooded killer, and he was killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Kemper actually continued, you know, manipulates this man physically and mentally because Mullen was 5'9". Kemper was 6'9", so more than a foot difference. And Kemper stated that Mullen had a habit of singing, and nobody liked it. Everyone hated it. They were trying to watch TV. This jackass kept singing. So what would Kemper do? Since he was in the cell next to Mullen, he'd throw water on him to shut him up. And then if he quit singing and he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavioral modification therapy. Love it. Yes. So that shows you how smart he is. The fact he was able to manipulate this guy by throwing water on him and feeding him peanuts and calling him a good boy, you know. Oh, Herbie was good today. Okay, he can have peanuts. Yeah, good boy, Herbie. Yeah. So So Kemper remains among Gen Pop in prison. He is, as he was the first time, a model prisoner. Yeah, he actually Uh, didn't have a rules violation until 2016. So he was locked up. Failing to provide a urine sample. So it's like barely a rule violation. Yeah, so from 73 to 2016, nothing. And I'm like, that's that's pretty good. I'll give him that. It's impressive. Yes. Uh, he, he was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists. He was a craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of audiobooks for the blind. Uh, and you can actually still find these. They are yes. still out there. You can have Ed Kemper read you your bedtime story. I wanted to read The Hungry Little Caterpillar. No, nothing. How about the rainbow no. fish? No, God, no. Green eggs oh, and ham. My child, that. 
Oh, that for would those be of hilarious. you that don't know what Ed Kemper sounds like, that voice reading Green Eggs and Ham would <laughs> haunt your fucking dreams. That would be awesome. Oh my god. <gasps> no, if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> Obviously. Okay. So he actually spent, like she said, a lot of time reading these books. He had over 5,000 hours spent narrating these books and several hundred books completed. He actually was forced to retire from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared medically disabled, which actually really pissed him off because he had nothing else to do. He enjoyed doing these. He actually got an award from the LA Times and one of the cities near there for doing all this work for the blind. So, yeah, he was this horrible, evil person, but he did do some good later on. So I'll, I'll, I'll scratch that one up. Not even, but, you know, he's making the best of it now. Absolutely. And for those of you that watch Mindhunter, um, the portrayal of, of Ed Kemper and what he did for the FBI is actually accurate. Yes. Um, an FBI profiler, John Douglas, described Kemper as among the brightest prison inmates he interviewed and capable of rare insight for a violent yes. criminal. Um, he was forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. And there's this really... It's kind of a long quote, so I won't read the whole thing about him saying that if there's somebody out there watching this, you know, he hopes that it inspires them to talk to somebody about what they're feeling and not let it eat them up from the inside and boil out of control and wind up doing what he did. So he was first eligible for parole in 1979, which really wasn't that long after he was sentenced. I mean, he was sentenced in November of 73. First parole, what, six years later? Seven. Because it was like like 73 to 79 is six, but it wound up being seven years because that was his minimum sentence was seven. So um, he was denied parole that year, obviously. And he was actually denied in 1980, 1981, and 1982. He waived his right to a hearing in 85, and he was denied parole in 88 as well. And he actually said in 88 that society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault him for that totally understandable he was denied parole again in 91 94 waived the right to a hearing in 97 2002 the next hearing in 2007 he actually attended and once again denied parole the prosecutor said we don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes so once again wasn't allowed 2012 waived his rights once again Denied actually went to his parole hearing in 2017, was denied, and he's the next eligible in three years. So 2024. I mean, there's always a possibility of him getting out, but again, like I said earlier, I don't, I don't foresee it. Like Ed Kemper is one of the most prolific serial killers of our of our time. Um, and I don't foresee, I don't foresee a society's (laughs) ability to adapt to him being out. But also, he's really been in, in prison the majority of his life, and I, I don't foresee his ability to adapt with society. No, there's you no know, way coming, he would be able to survive out there. Coming out of, of juvie in the first place, you know, he was met with hippies, and that was just, like, so overwhelming to him. Imagine coming out now yeah, and after... seeing the absolute nonsense of, of, like, style and culture that we have going on now i think i think it would be absolutely incomprehensible for him yeah so he was actually the influence for a ton of different horror movies in the past him and ed gein were used as the inspiration for buffalo bill and the novel silence of the lambs which i'm sure we all know and he was actually quoted in american psycho which if you haven't seen it's a fantastic movie they actually claimed it was Ed Gein, but this is Kemper. He's quoted saying, you know what Ed Gein said about women? He said, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet, and treat her right. The other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. And this is something that Kemper actually said. So, he's a little evil, you know. Just wants to put people's head heads on a stick. But he never did put anyone's head on a stick, surprisingly. The cat, the that cat. was it. Just the cat. I mean, yeah, I, I got nothing. Uh, yeah. There so, are a bunch of other, like, 
horror films. And then obviously, like I said, in Mindhunter, he was portrayed by Cameron Britton, uh, who's a phenomenal actor who also like, fortunately for him, had a lot of, had a lot of actual footage of Ed Kemper to go off of, but his portrayal, if you haven't seen it, you have to go watch it. It is a, a, it's a phenomenal show. It, it, the opening uh, like five minutes is a guy blowing his head off. It's fantastic. Um, but then the portrayal of Ed Kemper is really phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, it was one of my favorite shows. I was so bummed that it's kind of put on hold now. We don't know if it'll come back or not. Because pandemic. Well, they actually released everyone from the contract. I know. Yeah. So I'm yeah. I'm really hoping it comes back, but. I'm not very uh Probably not. which I don't know why because they broke all sorts of records and everyone loved it. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, crime is kind of the big thing right now. Right. Why would you not do it? Just I mean, continue just, to go with that, right? Yeah. It was one of their top watch shows. I'd continue it. Yeah. So that is the co-ed killer Ed Kemper. Like we said, it was a uh, you know a lot more interesting than the Son of Sam was. Absolutely. Although, I mean, paint drying is more, more exciting than Son of Sam. Yeah, he really was just a boring motherfucker. Boring. Who right, are we? See. Who should we do next week? You want to do? Speaking of Ed Gein, you want to you want to do Ed Gein next week? Sure. The Butcher of Plainfield. Let's do that. I actually have one of his original fingerprint cards and dirt from his farm hanging on my wall. Nice. Yeah. All right. So then, yeah, we'll see you guys back next week for for some Ed Gein fun. Until then, this is Behind the Bars podcast.